0: Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. And on today's episode, we're going to be getting into an album that is known to many as one of the the greatest jazz albums of all time. We're gonna be getting into Something Else, which is by Cannonball Adderley, but very notably features Miles Davis as a sideman, something that didn't happen super often. So super excited to get into this one today. Um, But before we get into the episode, we're going to hop right into our jazz question of the week for Max this week, and we can both kind of answer this one. We'll keep it a little bit shorter and uh, and sweeter this week. But so the jazz question of the week that I have for you this week, Max, is uh, what is the solo that you have transcribed most recently, and why did you choose to transcribe that particular solo?
1: That's a great question, uh, Dwayne. Sorry, I mispronounced your name how (laughs) long have we known each
0: other max only 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 years and years 15 years years.
1: yeah don't take it personally okay
0: i won't Um, i never do Max.
1: good (laughs) it's too late for that yeah um i would say most recently i've transcribed some scott hamilton who's a great tenor player Mm. um he now i think lives in england or somewhere in europe um and plays a lot and, and tours a lot in Europe, but he's a, he's a great straight ahead swing oriented player. When he was first coming out on the scene, he sounded a lot like Ben Webster. Um, but uh, over time, shortly thereafter, he kind of came up with his own sound, which is kind of a mix between Ben Webster and the great Zoot Sims. Um, so I, I was transcribing his solo on the tune, Sweet Georgia Brown." and uh i i did that because i wanted to learn the tune sweet georgia brown and i think one great way to to learn songs in addition to learning chords and, and the harmonic structure of a tune as well as of course the melody is <clears throat> to transcribe one of your favorite players playing on that tune and so you get some great ideas on how to uh, address certain chord changes how to incorporate uh, melodic ideas and phrasing. A little bit easier and um, you also learn different ways that different players express melodies and a lot of times when a a saxophone player plays a melody they're gonna they're gonna do it in kind of their own way and add to it and and maybe you know you you want to learn the melody verbatim first and then you can see how other players added on to those melodies and and how they played them in their way so i transcribed Uh, Scott Hamilton on Sweet Georgia Brown for those reasons.
0: That's awesome, and I think it's cool to note that you're transcribing other players playing the melody. A lot of times when we think of like a transcription, we just transcribe a solo, but I think it's super cool to hear you say like you're transcribing Scott play the melody to see how he treats the melody. I think that's something cool and something that people can learn from. Um, Take your favorite players and transcribe anything that you like that they're doing, whether it's the melody, a solo, part of, you know, a shout chorus, like you can transcribe, you know, anything that they're doing that you like and try to pick up on, on what they're doing.
1: Right. Yeah. That, that's a good go-to I think for, um, anybody learning new newer tunes to them or, or, you know, just getting ideas on how to address not only solos, but melody as well. And, and maybe, you know, you don't want to copy verbatim what they're doing, but you want to use it as a catapult to get you thinking about different ways to to play those melodies.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, really quickly, I think uh, one thing that I, a transcription that I've been doing, one thing that I've been working on is some of, we actually talked about uh, Oscar Peterson on Night Train, some of the solos on that. I think most specifically recently I was doing Bag's Groove. There's like a, uh, the beginning of that solo is not super difficult, um, but it's like really swinging. And it's a good intro to Oscar Peterson and kind of, what I was working on is that feel, you know, we talked about his feel and his swing feel. So that's the one thing that I was really keying in on is kind of his feel and those, those bluesy double stop licks and things. So that's, that's what I've been working on most recently.
1: That is another aspect of transcribing that sometimes we don't really focus on when we're talking about it or, or learning from others is that you want to be able to um, gauge in how that particular player's swing feel is being expressed Mm -hmm. because, you know, Oscar's swing feel versus Keith Jarrett versus, um, Ahmad Jamal, those are all going to be a little different and Mm -hmm. and sometimes quite different. So those are key things to, to keep in mind when you are transcribing, you know, trains swing feel is going to feel different than Gene Ammons versus, um, Sonny Rollins and and yada yada. So that's another great aspect of transcription is how are you addressing the feel of the player and their swing approach? Um, And what are you going to grasp from it? What appeals to you? I think most of the time we want, or we should transcribe things that we do um, kind of uh, feel a connection to. Mm -hmm. And there are certain players we're going to grasp over others. And I think, you know, we want to be able to learn, people from all different um, parts of the history, you know, you should know some Chick Corea in addition to knowing some Hank Jones and Oscar Peterson. But I think there's going to be obvious players that we're going to gravitate to. And I think it's a good idea to just go for those players most of the time.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's definitely good to be well-rounded. But yeah, if you're trying to kind of, you know, create your style and what you like and how, you know, what speaks to you. You definitely want to transcribe the solos that speak to you the most and the players that speak to you the most. So I definitely agree with Max there. Cool. Well, that was a uh, just a quick jazz question of the week, but I think it's a cool one to, to get into, see what we've been kind of working on. So let's get into the history for this album a little bit. So... This album is by, you know, alto saxophonist uh, Cannonball Adderley. We've talked about him before on a previous episode. And so one thing that's interesting to note is that this is his only release on the Blue Note record label. Um, And so this was recorded and released in 1958. And so also to note is that um, Miles Davis is on the session as a sideman. And this is one of the only times that... Miles Davis was ever a sideman, um, especially after 1955. So, you know, earlier in his career, there were albums where he was featured as a sideman when he was younger. But after 1955, this is one of the few recordings where he's featured as as a sideman. And he's kind of like a, a co-leader on this album. We'll get into it a little bit more. Go ahead, Matt. I would
1: also, yeah, I just want to say that this also reminds me a little bit of John Coltrane's album, Blue Train, because mm-hmm. that is Train's only record on Blue Note uh records so it's kind of you know two awesome quintessential players train and cannonball and both of them only have one album with bluno records
0: but they're like super prolific yeah album which is interesting <laughs> so. um but yeah so and at the time of recording this album uh cannonball was a member in the miles davis quintet so they were familiar with each other they're really good friends um and you can tell that Miles has a lot of respect for Cannonball, and that might be one of the reasons that that he chose to be a, a you know to be a side man on the album. Um, yeah, so let's get into the the personnel a little bit on this album. Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about the the horn players on the album? Sure.
1: As we were talking, the leader is Cannonball Adderley. We we did a kind of a deeper dive into him already um, on the Cannonball Adderley Nancy Wilson album episode that we did. But if you don't know, he was born in 1928 in Tampa, Florida. He's one of the alto sax players of the hard bop era of the 1950s and 60s. As you mentioned, he was a key member of the Miles Davis Sextet. Think of the album Kind of Blue that he's on. And he's also known for the Cannonball Adderley Sextet, which um, was a quintessential hard bop group. Um, And there's some great playing and some great tunes that have become standards from that group, including Mercy, 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 written from Joe Zawinul, his piano player at the time. Um, and again, we went over him extensively. So if you want more info on him, check out episode five of our podcast where we do a deeper dive into cannonball. And then the sideman who's almost a co-leader on this record, Miles Davis, born as Miles Dewey Davis III in 1926, and he was raised in East St. Louis. He had a musical mom and a father that was a dentist and he received his first trumpet in 1935. He really liked the blues, gospel, and big band music, and he took lessons from a cat named Elwood Buchanan, who is really dead set against using vibrato. And so when we think about Miles Davis, a lot of his tone is straight tone. He doesn't use much vibrato, whereas other trumpet players, especially during the big band era, think about Harry James, who used a lot of vibrato. So that's a key note of miles's style that was really influenced early on in his learning of of the trumpet and of music in general, where he just got it into his head he was going to do less vibrato, even though he really wanted to. And a lot of times when he was practicing with Elwood Buchanan or uh, some other people he was learning from, they would slap his hand every time he would use vibrato in a <laughs> lesson. <laughs> so, I I think that stuck with Miles. And so you know. Those kinds of things that are really essential to knowing Miles' sound were developed early on in his his learning, and just you know, there's a lot to go over with Miles. We won't get into everything right now. We're, we'll do a deeper dive into Miles Davis at a later time when we do a Miles Led album. But just know that that he had a great uh, presence in in every almost every big subgenre of this music. He had a hand in in bop because he was a sideman to the great Charlie Parker. When he moved to New York, he went to Juilliard for, I believe, a year and a half, but he barely went and attended classes because most of his time he was chasing bird around town and trying to play with him and sit in and eventually became a member of uh, Charlie Parker's group. And so he had a hand in the bob era. And then, of course, he developed his own kind of cooler sound in the late 40s, early 50s. He had the birth of the cool record. Um, so he had a hand in the, in the cool jazz era. And then of course he had a hand in modal or, or post-bop music with things like this album and kind of blue, which you can hear. And then he was also very active in fusion and the electric style, you know, mixing together rock and and jazz. And a lot of times later in his career, we're talking the seventies, he would open up for rock groups and, you know, he was kind of in a lot of different worlds, all at once, a lot of the time. And then later in his career, he did some kind of almost, not cliche, but almost cliche pop covers where he did, you know, tunes like Time After Time (laughs) and things like that. So he, he had a very long career. He had bouts of issues with drugs in and out. And so there's a lot to talk about, but I'll just leave it there and just say he's one of the, sort of innovators of this music undeniably. And so it's good to check out Miles Davis on this record.
0: Yeah, and Miles is probably one of the most well-known jazz musicians to the, you know, popular culture to people. And there's that's the reason for it which Max mentioned is he has such a a hand a heavy hand in such a long history of jazz and so many eras in jazz really from bop all the way until like more modern stuff and when he got into more fusion stuff and the things that max mentioned so there's a reason that everyone knows who miles is and he just had a certain style about him we'll kind of talk about his style a little bit you know with his playing but there was a certain style to miles and he was just cool and so that was you know so people know who miles is and that's you know there's a good reason for it Okay, cool. Let's get into the, the rhythm section a little bit. We get Hank Jones on piano for the first time on our podcast, which is super cool. He was born in Mississippi in 1918. And he was raised in a musical family. Um, and talk about a musical family. His brothers are Thad Jones and Elvin Jones. So it doesn't get much more musical than that. I don't know if we've done either of those guys on the podcast yet.
1: Not yet, but we will definitely get into both of those guys. Um, But just think about the powerhouse of the Jones family and the powerhouse of the Heath family. Yeah. You know, great musical families that have given so much to this music.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, comes from a musical family. He studied piano at an early age, and he was performing by 13 years old. We talk about so many of these cats that are just, they're out playing as teenagers, as, like, kids. I know... I mean, we started young, but we weren't out gigging at 13 years old. I mean, not, not yet. quite. It, no. it was, you know, we were out early, but I mean, it was probably, we were probably 16 when we played our first gig. These kids, these guys were out when they were 13 years old, playing in clubs, playing it up. So he met uh sax man, Lucky Thompson in 1944, who encouraged him to move to New York. And once he was there, he worked with the likes of Coleman Hawkins, Howard McGee, Billy Eckstein, who so many work with. And he worked um, with the jazz at the Philharmonic series in 1947. He also toured with Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Charlie, and he recorded with Charlie Parker. And from 1959 to 1975, he was a staff pianist for the CBS studios. He's also known for backing Frank Sinatra Marilyn Monroe and he's just had such a long career. He recorded prolifically in the 70s and 80s, toured Japan in the 80s, and then he worked on Afropop recordings in the 90s um, before working with some more modern um, jazz musicians into the, the 2000s, such as Christian McBride and Diana Krall, and he passed away in 2010. So a very long life, lots of um, just a massive discography throughout his whole career, and worked with so many different musicians. Um, so yeah, Hank Jones is definitely someone to note. Um, one of the yeah. all-time jazz piano players, and on so many different recordings. And he is so
1: swinging. I I think um, some cats will sleep on Hank Jones, and they really shouldn't. You got to check out Hank Jones.
0: I ag- I agree. Um, especially in this era, he's one of the guys, and his style. He's just He's very versatile. We'll talk about, we'll get more into it on the album, but he's really well-rounded um, and definitely a little bit underrated. I agree with that. So we get Sam Jones on bass, another Jones not of relation to, to Hank Jones, though, um, the fantastic Sam Jones. Uh, we discussed him on episode five, which was our Nancy Wilson and cannonball at early episode. So definitely go take a listen to that episode. Um, that's a really cool one to get a singer and cannonball on the same album and the likes of Nancy Wilson. So go check out that, um, hear a little bit more about Sam Jones on that one. And then on drums to round out this fantastic cast, we get the one and only art Blakey, um, a little bit about Blakey. He was born in 1919 in Pittsburgh. Um, he became known in the 40s in the big bands of Fletcher Henderson and again, Billy Eckstein, who so many people played with. Um, he then worked with bot musicians such as Monk, Bird, and Dizzy Gillespie. And in the mid 1950s, he and Horace Silver formed the Jazz Messengers, which was a group that he was associated with for the next 35 years. And this group was formed as a, a, a collective of contemporaries, but then the band became known as kind of this incubator for young talent. So many young jazz musicians went through there. Lee Morgan, um, Benny Golson, Jamie Merritt was on bass. I mean, just so many. I mean, Bobby Timmons, so many different musicians through there. I mean, I can't even start. Jackie McLean. I'm i not going to get into all of them. If you want to know, go Wikipedia Jazz Messengers. I just got into a couple of them. Um, but he is the hard bop drummer. He's the drummer for this era his style is so unique and B- blakey's just an all-time jazz drummer and he's he's so good uh we'll definitely get into some of his albums and jazz messenger albums later on the podcast and he's been inducted to so many hall of fames and it's well deserved the downbeat jazz hall of fame um the modern drummer hall of fame the grammy hall of fame and he was also awarded a grammy lifetime achievement award in 2005.
1: Yeah, there's so much to talk about with Art Blakey. It's like, where do you stop? But we're going to stop right now because yeah, <laughs> we'll, we got to get into We it, can get, it, get a little of the deeper music.
0: when we get into a, a Jazz Messengers album. But just know that Art Blakey, I mean, he's just almost Miles Davis-esque with his impact on the music and on so many players, I think is the biggest thing. Um, Absolutely. Cool. Well, let's get into the album a little bit, Max. Why don't you start us out with uh, the track Autumn Leaves? I mean, we're just starting out right here yeah
1: (laughs) coming in hot with the one of the pop or jazz standards that we know of called autumn leaves i think it's one of the most recorded songs in jazz history this one written by joseph cosma in 1945. originally it used french lyrics um, before johnny mercer added english lyrics and if you don't know cosma was from budapest um he took lessons at an early age, by age five, and he wrote his first opera at age 11. That is insane.
0: Another one. Age 11. <laughs> what was I doing at age 11?
1: You were not writing an opera.
0: That's no, for sure. Not even close. I was um, playing like Twinkle Twinkle. had a little star on the piano. Uh, at age 11, like. <laughs> not really, but still. Right.
1: Joseph Cosmo went on to study with the likes of Bartok, and he immigrated to Paris in 1933. I believe he's he's of Jewish descent, um, and he was, at the time of the occupation of France during World War II, he was placed under house arrest, and he was barred from composing. And what happened was he still wrote music, yet he was fronting for other composers and using their names or using different names when he was actually publishing his work. And this was kind of more or less organized by his lyricist counterpart named Jacques Prevert, um, and if, you know, he, he, made it through that time, but you know, because of his, his Jewish ancestry and Germany occupying France, he really had to lay low and he was barred from being present in public life, but he was still present musically writing for other people. Fortunately, he lived on to write a ton of more music as well. And he passed in 1969. So this one from Joseph Cosma, and it is one of these standards And this is one of the versions of the standard that Mm -hmm. really should be checked out from everyone. If you don't know, it has a really nice Hank Jones introduction. He's outlining the common opening line intro to the piece with some goose eggs or some longer notes that are held out by the horns. And there's that nice sizzle symbol before rhythmic hits are played. And I love the space given right before miles comes in with the main melody intro. The whole intro itself is 50 seconds, and it's quite lengthy, but it's interesting. And in general, they're playing a slower tempo for this tune, but it works well within their treatment of the standard. So initially, it seems like it's a bit slow, but as it goes on, it it's such a perfect... There's such a perfect reason why they're going this tempo.
0: I think it's just such a... Like, this album is i mean let's just be honest it's a masterpiece and it feels like everything in this album fits so perfectly and this intro is just so iconic and so it feels like like when you hear this intro you know what like what you're listening to with this album and this tune so it's just it's iconic from the from the get-go for sure
1: yes and then there's more you know uh iconic Hank Jones introductions later on in the album. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about too. So that's just an overall great feature to this record. I think is the introductions. Um, and then once we get into the melody, there's longer held out notes played by miles and you can right away hear his straight tone and his easygoing feel and Canna early actually gets the first solo. So the whole melody is played only by miles Davis and it's a, you know, it's an initial, um example of our point where it's almost a co-led album from miles and if you know this album features miles davis quite nicely and and quite abundantly in my opinion Mm -hmm. and and that's a great thing about this record and as i mentioned cannonball has that first solo yet there's a nice rip from miles right before cannonball enters it's kind of like a passing of the torch a sort of signal um to where the solos start so it's cool to listen for that and if you listen to Cannonball Solo, he kind of starts out lyrical with some space, space, excuse me, used well. That's in between certain ideas. From 238 to 242, you can hear the the jumps he makes from a lower note to a higher octave note, and I love those those ideas that he does. From 250 to 253, there's great mid range used and a trill used, which points to me that says there's some swing era influence in what he's doing. His lines are also impeccable, and they always feel good. And I also enjoy the falling thirds you can hear at 255. He overall has great phrasing and use of syncopation from 312 to 321, where he's ending an idea on a lower note and then extending those notes at dotted lengths and continually building his ideas without a breath in between. And it makes for a nice syncopated moment that's quite tough to pull off as smoothly as he's able to. He also does these fast 16th note falls or rips periodically that make for a nice dynamic movement. And there's nice repeated notes at 358, 412 is a nice playful way to do chromatic falling movement as well. So he gives you so much in every solo and especially in this one. And it's great to listen for those moments. Miles also has a solo. And of course, we get Miles Davis right away. With his longer notes, his use of space, he has slight vibrato used at certain moments, but most of the time it's straight tone. And um, he's swinging harder as he gets into the solo right at 550 and onward. There's some shorter articulated notes that are used by Miles too. And generally speaking, I think Miles' endings of phrases are so interesting to listen for. He actually uses a range of techniques when ending his phrases or lengthening his phrasing and sometimes there's short staccato notes but at other times there's long notes that are either tapered off or just he just plays it and he'll, holds it out longer than you would expect and it's quite useful when you you know you can notice those things because that is what miles davis is all about i actually want you to take a listen to to it so we're going to put in a little snippet here and this is a great example of what miles davis does with the endings of his phrases
0: yeah for sure yeah let's get a listen to it this is our first listen in and we're going to do some more of this uh we're going to listen to certain snippets and kind of actually let you hear what we're talking about so let's listen for that um what max is talking about with his treatment and how he um articulates things differently
2: Yeah
0: Yeah,
1: right so right so there, right there. yep. Yeah, you can hear that you know, the short articulation right at the very end of that snippet. And then at the beginning, the way he's just lengthening phrasing and lengthening ideas much longer than you would expect and holding out notes just just to just to see, you know how almost it's almost like you can see how long you can hold it out for or where are you going to, you know, he's placing the ending of the note very intentionally in different spots in the meter. And it's just great to listen for that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we kind of heard that kind of straighter tone too. Um, at the end of that first phrase too, there wasn't a whole lot of vibrato there. It's just kind of straight through, whereas other cats might play that with a lot more vibrato. Miles has a straighter tone there.
1: Absolutely, especially at the ends of those longer notes, um, at the ends of phrases, you know, you would expect a little vibrato at least, but not not with Miles Davis. Yep, cool. All right, and then we get into a piano solo, and Dwayne, I I want you to take that over. What do you think of this piano solo? What do you have to say about it?
0: Yeah, I really, really enjoy this piano solo. We kind of get to hear Hank Jones style. This one's super short, but very sweet. And there's a lot of cool things going on. I actually want, let's listen to this because it's a really short. solo. it's just one chorus. We're going to listen to this as well. And then we'll kind of get into some of the different things. One thing I want you to listen for though, before I play it, is listen for Hank Jones' articulation. And yes, we can think about articulation as pianists as well. It's not just horn players. So listen to how he lets some notes hold. It's very What he does well, I think, in my opinion, is he kind of plays in a similar style to what Miles has played before him, um, with letting some notes kind of ring out a little bit, and then some phrases are much more staccato, kind of similar to that snippet that we listened to from Miles. So let's listen to... To Hank Jones and kind of get an idea for his style and listen for that articulation there. Ah, oh, short, long. Ah, oh, short. Here it is. Uh-
1: Yeah. And if you listen for the specifically those last four or six measures, I think it's the last four at the every end of those of his phrases is is a different length. Yep. The last note of each of those. And to me, that's that's screaming also another moment of Miles Davis, even though it's Hank Jones doing it on piano.
0: Yeah. I had actually pointed out. Yeah. I think it's the last six bars. He kind of does that. Six bars. Yeah. Yeah, um, And I really love the that last six bars it feels like this solo is short but that last six bars wraps it up so well
1: and i also really enjoy how he started his solo you yeah know, it's, it's thematic development he's not just outlining you know bebop licks or you know doing something quarterly with every chord um he, he's actually in the moment always it's it's almost as if he's breathing through what he's playing and it's, it's, you know, it's sort of stream of consciousness, but in still in an organized manner and in a way that makes sense with the music. But it, it's something that's always ever developing. And you get that from Cannibal Adderley too a lot of, a lot on his solos in this record as well. But that's a great moment to listen for with Hank Jones.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's just it shows how much you can do with so little. Like you can take one course. We get such great development here from one chorus of solo. It's just really nice. He starts out the the beginning he's kind of quoting the melody, but he's doing it in a way that's not a direct quote of the melody. He's not doing it in in quarter notes. He's doing it in trip like eighth note triplets. So, I think it's super cool how he starts out. Like Max said that's super cool thematic like kind of motif way to start the melody. And then he kind of gets into some more of the moving bop lines. But one thing that really stands out to me is Hank Jones' feel and his swing. And one thing that he does super well is you might get, when someone's playing bop lines, they might just play 16th note lines, you know, and just kind of chop it up. But that's not what Hank Jones does here. He keeps it super interesting by mixing in some different Uh, triplet feels eighth note triplet feels 16th note triplet feels and it's just super interesting the whole time and he does a good job of mixing in some lines and then throwing in some more of those thematic ideas and motifs and so just a really cool solo here from Hank Jones albeit one chorus is definitely one to listen for and I yeah we talked about how just stylistically like after miles just such a, a good job uh here from from Hank
1: Yeah. And after that piano solo, we get Miles back in with the melody and you can hear some nice brushing that's being played by Art Blakey. And I can't really remember much Blakey brushing in my mind if I think about Art Blakey records. Um, So it's a nice touch here to hear Blakey on brushes. And there's a cool interlude from the piano again with the Roboto almost open piano cadenza. It's an interesting choice, and it's a really nice touch to the arrangement of this track. And it's it comes right before an actual outro. And it's it's at a slower tempo that we get than we were presented with from most of the track. And it's mostly just rhythm section dynamically moving downward while playing slower, and then it dissipates eventually, but it's definitely really extended, and you get great sizzle symbol too miles does come in for some final touches before a final idea is expressed on the piano to close it out and i personally dig this extended intro outro that occurs on this record on autumn leaves that they do and i kind of wish maybe they had included cannonball on that outro but what they do absolutely works and i'm so overjoyed they didn't just do a studio fade even though they do some later on in the record
0: we know Max and, and Studio Fades but i i agree Max hit the the nail right on the head with this ending this is how you make an ending to a song mean something and i think that's a theme throughout the album is the kind of arranging of the album and i think that Miles Davis definitely had a big part in the arranging of the the tunes on this track but i just love the the slow tempo and Hank Jones i mean he's just killing over this section too the style is is so good and that's there's just like this magical feel in the air in the studio and everyone's just it feels like it's everyone's on the same wavelength so at the the outro here is is just fantastic i think i don't know if i agree that it needs cannonball on the end i think you could put cannonball but i think what miles is doing at the end is is perfect for what's going on in in the outro there
1: and it makes sense since miles was the only one doing the melody yeah um And that is one possible critique I could make, is that just personally for me, I do wish Cannonball was included in the melody a little bit here and and maybe some other moments on the record. But, you know, Miles is doing his thing, and really, if you dig in, you can't get enough. So it's great what they got.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Miles. You got to let Miles be Miles, you know, if he's yeah. going to be on on the record. So I, I agree with that, Max. Cool. Let's get into Love for Sale, the second track on the album, and just another awesome piano intro. I mean, and this kind of feels like something you would hear on a solo piano album. I mean, it sounds like almost like an Art Tatum-esque piano intro to, you know, it's just going to be a piano-led melody. But no, then we get the band coming in with this samba-style... Love for Sale head, which is so different. I mean, no one's ever done this song like this before. And this uh, head, it's just, Miles is very stylistic, which is what Miles is all about. So we get that kind of Miles style on the head, which throughout the entire album is what we're going to get. And then we get Cannonball coming in on for a solo, and he comes in cooking. He comes in hot, and this is where we get to see Cannonball kind of stretch his legs a little bit is on this solo solo. Um, there's lots of intricately woven bop lines, but there's really cool use of articulation by cannonball we're talking a, a lot about articulation and I think it's something to note that these players are just so good and listen for that their technique um and what he does is he like, He's playing these kind of moving lines, but he's articulating notes in different places and making certain notes kind of stand out and pop um, throughout the lines, which I think is is really cool and something to listen for. And like we talked about transcribing, if you're transcribing this, don't just transcribe the notes that he's playing and play the notes. Listen to the way that he's articulating those notes and what he's emphasizing, um, especially you know if you're listening to this one. And then we get some more bluesy texture from uh, 227 to 244. And then you can hear an obvious shift from um from Art Blakey. And he starts to drive things a bit more with the ride symbol at 254. You hear him kind of move to a different spot on the symbol. And when he does this, Cannonball kind of changes the way that he's playing. I think it's uh pretty interesting to listen for. And it leads to like a more space-filled motif and soul-driven section from from Cannonball. And I think. It's just super interesting to point out like how well they're listening to each other. Cannonball kind of feels Blakey start to drive it in a different way and uh and takes the solo in a different direction. And then I love there's an idea from 313 to 318. He takes an idea, repeats it, transposes it up. We already know how hip this is. We talk about this on the podcast all the time. Um cool use of that technique there. And I think it's interesting as dial as Blakey dials it back um on the ride symbol cannonball starts to go kind of go back into those moving lines a little bit more so i think there's really good group development of the solo it's not just cannonball developing the solo and everyone just kind of playing monotone behind it with the rhythm section no everyone's playing the solo together we're all developing this solo not just cannonball so i really like how they're listening there and i like that that um aspect of the solo and go ahead max
1: Oh no! I was just gonna say, what can you dislike about this Cannonball solo? I, oh yeah, I,
0: there's so I much to like.
1: Um, and there's just so many. Everything just feels so great, and there's never a dull moment. And I just love that aspect of yep. Cannonball.
0: Yep. And I just I love his ability to kind of take the the bebop chops, but also infuse them with kind of the blues and the soul motifs, and like he just his ability to like craft a solo is so good. And this, this solo is just, it's super interesting and it's, it's, it's great to listen for. And this solo, I mean, we're just, we're getting cannonball full force on this one. And on this, uh, on this track, we just get a long cannonball. solo. no one, uh, no one else takes a solo, which is kind of nice because it is a cannonball led album. We'll let him shine. Um, miles has kind of been playing the melodies and kind of getting his style on the melodies, and I really like the the fact that they extensively feature Cannonball and let him stretch out a bit on on this track. And then they play the melody again. Miles plays the melody. And I think it's super cool. They let Hank Jones take the B section on the head out, which I think is a, a cool um, thing there. It's just we're talking about how well this is arranged and how interesting this album is. And... Um, then they do a repeated ending, and it's kind of a mix of like a natural fade with like a studio fade for some effect. It's mostly just a natural fade from the musicians, but they also taper it off in the, the studio just for effect. Max, what are your your um your overall thoughts on on this this track?
1: Well, I think you're hitting uh, some great points. I think one major aspect to this version of Love for Sale is the way Miles Davis is playing the melody. He uses a lot of tones. You know, repeated tones quite nicely instead of moving where the melodic line is traditionally played. And this kind of reminds me of the way a vocalist might tweak a melody in the moment, um, where it'll, you know, she or he may add some melismatic movement or may, you know, simplify the melodic line a little bit in terms of the actual notes where they're supposed to be sung or played. You know, th- they'll do something that, that really is stylistic. And you can hear that more so on the head out. Here, only Miles is 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 playing that head, just like on on autumn leaves that you mentioned. And it's an interesting choice, but it's really key to to hear the way Miles is playing this melody. And I want us to check it out together. So if we listen from about 5:07 to 5:16, you can hear how Miles is tweaking the melody to fit his his personal style
0: yeah and i think this is kind of like we talked about his treatment of a lot of the melodies you can kind of get a a hear for it right here with this clip so kind of what we're talking about let's go ahead and and listen to miles's treatment of the melody on that the head out here
2: yeah
1: right so towards the end of that he is he is sticking to more or less the melodic line but if you hear especially that second phrase he's just repeating that one note da, 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 right yep and it, that is not really the way the melody goes per se but it works well because miles is pulling it off in his style and and you know it's rhythmic and it, it's still the melody even though it's not the melody verbatim
0: yep and that kind of goes back to what we're talking about with transcribing melodies i mean if you want to learn that kind of style Miles' style transcribe the melody too and kind of how he's approaching the melody not just you know solos he doesn't even take a solo but you could transcribe the way that he's playing the melody on this this track and definitely gain something from that
1: absolutely next we get the tune something else which is uh the third track on the album and it is an original from miles davis and Again, it's it's another interesting moment where you can ro- sort of personally witness the dichotomy of Miles Davis and Cannibal Adderley on an album together. Where Cannibal is is really the leader, but Miles is so present that we have one of his original tunes on it. And it seems like Cannibal Adderley didn't write that much. Um, we know that Nat Adderley wrote a bunch of tunes and a lot of great Cannibal recordings are of him playing with Nat Adderley, um, on Nat Adderley originals. Um, so I, I'm not sure if I know of a Cannonball original tune that comes to my mind.
0: Yeah, a, it does feel like know. Nat wrote a lot of the, the music for the Cannonball Adderley quintet. Um, which I guess makes sense if you have a brother who is in your quintet and you're close to, and Nat was such a great songwriter that it seemed like that, you know, Cannonball just let Nat do, do that thing. And, and kind of played a lot of the tunes that Nat would write.
1: Right. Cannonball doesn't have to necessarily compose new songs or anything because he's such an awesome player, and he adds to everything he's on. So it's just a a cool thing to think about with this record and with Cannonball Adderley in general. But here we get the title track, something else, from Miles, and it starts right on the melody. So here we do not get a sort of awe-inspiring introduction. We just start right on the head, and there's this cool call and response between Miles and Cannonball we get where Miles plays an idea and Cannonball repeats it back almost verbatim. And on a couple of them, those instances, it seems as if Cannonball is slightly timid and coming right in. I mean, it, it, it's not like he's he's shying away. It's just not quite as present as Miles is. And it seems like maybe these repeating ideas that are going back and forth Maybe, you know, pre notated and, and pre thought out, but some of them, I think, are just improvised in the moment. And mm-hmm. so Cannonball can just hear what Miles is playing and and play it back to him. And it, it seems sort of half improvised, half notated to me, um, which is cool to listen for. And it even despite maybe a lack of music notation, it it, it is executed flawlessly. All in all, the the, the melody back and forth takes up 24 bars, and we're getting a sense of modalism here with extended single harmonies that are being played, and there's strong bass lines from Sam Jones here. Sam Jones comes out to me on this track in particular, and Miles Davis has the first solo that is signified by the classic Art Blakey press press roll that we all know about that goes right into the solo section, and I can't get enough of those Art Blakey press roll moments. Um, you know, and it seems like the trumpet is is coming out loud and clear. It's not really muted and there's great phrasing from, from miles. I love his shorter lip falls that he does at the ends of some of his phrases, his repeating ideas and notes that develop are are just spot on the way he does them. 207 to 217 is a prime example where he's pretty much sticking to one idea and then adding slightly to it, but maintaining an overarching idea that he pulls from for the development of his improv and he's also quite rhythmic too and i'm just now listening to you know this solo in particular i'm really noticing how rhythmic he is and there's some higher notes that he also uses here which you know signifies his great range on the instrument and cannibal solo comes up next which is quite mesmerizing at times his push and pull of the beat and feel is quite evident there's a lot of syncopated longer notes, and there's a key moment to listen for, and we'll listen for it together here, where Art Blakey does this almost double-time feel, but the rest of the band is maintaining what they've been doing, and this reminds me of a similar moment on Blue Train, John Coltrane's album, where Philly Joe Jones does the same thing underneath solos. So check it out. This is 357 to 415, uh, more or less, on uh, during Cannonball Adderley's solo.
2: Hmm.
1: yeah and they go yeah and they go right back in to the regular feel like you know Nothing had happened. It's yep. just so smooth. And Cannibal also plays differently during that section, where he's more kind of fluttering, or or it reminded me of a bee or a wasp, or you know something that was just riding on top effortlessly on top of what Art Blakey was doing. And it's a great moment in the Cannibal Adderley solo.
0: And I think it kind of um, we talked about it with the with what was it the last track right um where cannonball is kind of changing his approach based on what's going on with art blakey and it's just great listening great like group development there as well on this one so kind of a recurring theme there
1: absolutely and it's another moment where you can hear that art blakey adds so much even when he's not being featured as a soloist um so you know things to think about. Cannonball's double time faster lines are also so impressive in the in the pocket. He adds more notes to some of his phrases than you'd expect, yet he still keeps it always grooving. At the end of his solo, Cannonball plays around with a rhythmic idea that is reflected by Hank Jones on the piano doing those rhythmic hits with him. And it's another moment where you're talking about, Dwayne, where you know the rhythm section is also developing the solo with Cannonball. It's not like cannonball soloing on top of a, a stagnant r- rhythm section. Yep. you know, they're listening to each other. So great to hear for that. And then we get um, a, a moment where it's like cannon, after cannonball is playing and and there's that moment with Hank Jones, um, miles comes back in with the two horns and they go back and forth with longer phrases that seems like they're almost going back to the head but they're not they're going to a Hank Jones solo and it's a gotcha moment that I really respect and it it got me I thought they were I I didn't remember that happening when I was listening to this for this podcast but that's what they do what you what you think of that moment
0: yeah I I love that kind of call and response section before the piano you would think that it's back into the head but then we get you know and that's just the arranging on this album is super cool you're It's never just like super, like easy to expect what's you know. It's not like you know what's going to happen. They keep you on your toes. They keep it interesting. So that's another point where it's just the arranging is super well done there.
1: Yeah, and that Hank Jones solo. You know, he's always so swinging, and I love his shorter, hard hitting phrases that he'll do. And he makes everything feel good. And that's a key aspect to this record is all the solos just feel good.
0: Yeah, and I think this, I kind of talked about Hank Jones's versatility a little bit, but this gives us like a completely different aspect in the way that that Hank Jones is playing the solo. It's almost completely like block chord movement, um, which is like way different than his first solo. And it's just cool to hear... His different techniques and this gives me kind of McCoy Tyner meets Milt Buckner meets like Bobby Timmons kind of vibes if you can <laughs> imagine all those guys so those are guys who kind of liked um it kind of has some like modal kind of movement to it but it has, also has that just like really block chord moving melody kind of feel that a Bobby Timmons or a Milt Buckner would would be known for
1: I also believe George Shearing was George big Shearing on block chord the,
0: the um innovator of that really
1: yeah, he was the block chord guy.
0: Yeah, he was the one who did it first, really. So, yeah, definitely good to point that out is that's where it comes from.
1: Yep, and then on the the head out is a little more fun to listen to, in my opinion, than the head in, where they're doing some ideas that the initial head in did did use and also did not use. It seems like they're kind of expanding on the melody um, more so on the head out than than what they were doing at the beginning. And here we do get a fade out, I do think the fade out works well here, even though I am personally not a big fan on fade outs in general. Um, that seems to come up quite a bit when we're discussing albums. But here it kind of makes sense with with the modal aspect of the tune and the way there's you know it just kind of goes in and out of melody and solos. a fade out seems appropriate here.
0: I don't know, Max. Uh, are you sure that you're I, I in my notes? I said, um, let's see. I said, there's a fade out. Someone check on Max, please, and make sure he's okay. <laughs> we know I, how I, Max feels about fade outs. But I, I there's sometimes there, there are times where it's appropriate for certain tunes. So I think it's well done here. There are times where it seems like they just kept playing and they didn't know what to do. So they just faded out in the studio. That doesn't seem like what what's going on here. This feels very intentional.
1: Right. And I just think there are better or other ways to end um tunes on a record and, you know, maybe put a little bit more thought into it. And it doesn't have to be really elaborate or extensive. You know, you can just end on a stinger note and that to me is a little more appealing than most fade outs would be. Yeah. So,
0: fade outs feel lazy at times to me. I, I can agree with that. It feels like just the easier, you know, an easy way to do it rather than actually Arranging something that makes sense,
1: right, right. And then from there we get a tune called "One for Daddy O." Dwayne, what were you thinking of this one?
0: Yeah, one thing that I want to point out before we move into "One for Daddy" this is a really quick point. Um, okay, is when you're listening to this track, listen to it and listen to everything that Max talked about, and then go back and listen to the track again and this is going to kill Max for me to say, but just listen to the rhythm section. Just listen to those three guys and listen to the what they're doing and listen to how dialed in they are throughout the entire track and how complimentary they are and how much they. we talked about the development of the solos It's so good. These guys are so dialed in and it's easy to miss it when you're listening to Cannonball and miles and all the cool things that they're doing. It's easy to get overshadowed, but listen to it once and just listen to the rhythm section and kind of listen to what they're doing because it's, it's incredible. It's outstanding, especially on, on that track there.
1: That's a great point. It is great to listen for again, how, how that rhythm section is playing together and how they're complementing the horns, but also, you know, How does Sam Jones's quarter note, how is it accentuated by Art Blakey's symbols and and feel? You know, what is Hank Jones doing? Hank Jones is doing so much, but it's not getting in the way of anything. It's it's really in the pocket, and they're listening to each other, and they are a unit. You know, we have to be a unit if we're talking about a rhythm section.
0: Yeah. So. And this is it's a prime example here. So definitely take a do a second a second listen and listen for, for them. They definitely deserve it on that one. Cool. Yeah, well, let's get into uh to one for daddy O's. I mean, the intro. Hello, blues. I mean, come on. What great feel on the intro from Hank Jones. We get another kind of style from Hank, super bluesy style here from Hank. Another Hank intro. I mean, he's just been all over it with the intros, and I think that is his staple on this masterpiece are some of these intros and how well they're done and how well they're curated. Um, The melody is a call and response between the horns and the piano over the blues form, which is really cool. And then one thing that's really cool about the break into the solo is that the entire band hits on the one, but you can hear Art Blakey play through to beat two and then stops. And I want to know, I'm, I want to listen to this with you, Max, and I want you guys to listen for this. And you'll hear the band kind of hit on one and then Blakey's shuffle kind of goes into two and then stops. It sounds good. And it. I wonder, is it on purpose? Is it not? Did Blakey mess up a little bit? But And then it's Blakey, so you can you even question what he's doing, if it's intentional or not? It's still swinging. Let's listen for it, Max, and then I want to get your thoughts as to if this is a little mistake by Blakey or what's going on here with this, with this section here. So we'll listen for this, uh, this break into the, the, the solo, right? Hit it.
1: Yeah, I don't, it, it, it seems it, you know, if you're not paying attention, you can miss it. Yeah. So it's, it's not like a huge mess up or or a big mistake and we don't even know if it is technically a mistake. It seems like maybe art didn't remember that they were going to do a two, two bar break or wasn't listening for the two bar break to happen or something. I I don't know that for for certain cuz it's not like he's jumbling some somewhere and doing something that's not in the pocket and not feeling good and it's not like it caught him off guard. Yeah. It just seems odd. You it's, know, it's,
0: it's, it's not something that you would really do. Like if you're going to do a two bar break, everyone, you hit on one and you get the break, you know, it's right. You don't bleed the drums over into beat two and into cannonballs playing. That's not like the, the typical way that you do it. But it doesn't stand out as being wrong necessarily, you know. I just, I just noticed it. I noticed like because we're listening, you know, we're trying to listen for things when we're listening to these albums. I just noticed, like, huh? I was like, everyone stopped on one, and Blakey's on two. I was like, I, I'm, I don't know what's Blakey doing here. Is this a little, a little <laughs> bit of a tidbit of a mistake here from Blakey? And it might be, but it's Blakey, so it's still the mistakes. It's like a singer when a singer's really good and their voice cracks a little, but it cracks in a way that's like kind of not like it, there are certain times where like you get a little bit of personality from some albums and Blakey here I mean you I don't even know if it's a mistake so it's you know I it's a, just an interesting thing to listen for
1: my guess is that it wasn't intentional but he's able to recover in such a way that doesn't get in the way of what's expected or you know what is supposed to happen um, musically you know it, he recognized right away even though if it wasn't intentional
0: and that's one thing that I love about these recordings. So many recordings and sessions of the era is that it feels like music today. A lot of times we get like, I mean, we just listened to stretch music last week and it feels like everything's so produced and so, you know, like finely tuned that like this album, there's so much personality here and there's so personality and imperfection. And that's one thing to note in jazz is that that you get character from things like that in moments like this instead of like they didn't chop it up and like fix it i mean it's just it is what it is you know and so i think it's actually a really cool thing to listen for a lot of times throughout jazz and you know these sessions is that personality that comes from these small nuances and maybe quote-unquote mistakes or things that happen like that and so yeah i actually yeah it's cool and i enjoy being able to hear those kinds of things that's
1: a great point um we talked a, a bit about that with the dexter gordon album go mm-hmm. where there's those moments in the transitions of sections of tunes where it's 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 almost sloppy but it's it, it's still in the pocket and they're still you know they they recover quite nicely and it does add a lot of character to the music that's going on
0: yeah for sure yeah definitely go listen to that album and our review that's i i'm that's one of my favorite albums dexter's killing on that one so cool but yeah so then cannonball gets into a solo and his lines are just so great and everything feels so purposeful to me to me it feels like everything is right where it's supposed to be and nothing is like filler just to get us through to the next thing or the next idea. And that's one thing that I love about cannonball more so than like so many other players and saxophonists and even any soloist is that everything from cannonball feels like it's intentional. It's where it needs to be. And everything with cannonball has this nutritional value to it. Everything he's playing has some substance, some, some value to it. So I, I really like like that. Um Max, what do you think about about uh Cannonball solo and um the other solos on this album are on this track?
1: Another neat aspect about Cannonball's solo on this particular track is that he goes into the lower register of the alto saxophone quite a bit. And you hear that from some alto players, but not all. And so his flexibility of going from one range to another is smooth and slightly melted butter to me. <laughs> uh, I <laughs> like just, that. <laughs> yeah it's just it's just so um, I don't know, so smooth the way he goes in and out and his lower register really comes out on, on this solo in particular. And I think in general, his lines are dynamite. He's always using these sort of wasp-like added notes to phrases and he has great development and phrasing in general. And there's also a great use of the blues in his solo. And we also get a mile solo on this and he's doing his usual thing. He's using even higher notes, in the range of the horn around the 325 mark and it sounds like he almost cracks a note or two but it doesn't matter because it feels so good and it's so cool that's what what, yeah
0: it's what exactly what we were just talking about with like a singer's like voice cracking miles cracks a little bit here but it just adds more character to it you know i i love when things like that happen and you kind of get miles being able to play through it stylistically
1: Right. He also has a great use of space, and that's one thing that's quite different between him and Cannonball is that they both use space, but they use it in different ways. And Miles' space is quite a bit longer most of the time than uh, Cannonball's. Miles also uses his longer held-out notes, and and he he does that quite a bit in his approach here. Then we get Hank Jones soloing, and he has a lot of single lines not much left hand and it's reminding me a bit of Sonny Clark um it seems like Hank's feel is is pretty swinging all the time and kind of reminds me of Wynton Kelly what did you hear during the piano solo Dwayne
0: yeah I think that this kind of screams uh Sonny Clark and, and Wynton Kelly kind of contemporaries at the time and I think um this one it's obviously all about those right-hand lines. He doesn't even comp with his left hand at any point in the solo, which is very rare even for Sonny Clark. Uh, you know, Sonny Clark was very right-hand line oriented and would be very sparse with his left hand, but there's no comping going on here in the left hand, which is uh just kind of interesting to listen for. And one thing that I think is um these three guys, it feels like they're all influenced by like Bud Powell and Art Tatum. That's kind of what I'm I'm getting here is like it seems like this style that they all complain, and it's very swinging, and sometimes the right hand things is very Bud Powell, Bob Line, like oriented. So I feel like these guys were all influenced by some of the same cats, and that's why we can kind of hear some similarities in their styles as as their influences, and in, you know the time, um, the era that we're in.
1: I think that's a great point to make. Um, it is great to listen for Hank Jones. I feel like with every hank jones solo he approaches them a little differently it's depending so, on the tune
0: it's so versatile it's so good and this one we get kind of more it's like right hand stuff but it's a little bit more like intervallic than some other solos it's like he's just I, it's incredible to listen to how hank is approaching this album he he is in my opinion you obvious it's obvious how good cannonball and miles are on this album but i think hank Jones playing on this album is maybe underrated it's it's incredible it's it's really really good and like max said every tune he's approaching it differently and he has the the technique to be able to do that
1: yeah and that screams musicality yeah um you know it's just something so cool to listen for and another cool aspect to one for Daddy-O is that is that each player gets a second solo mm-hmm. which is unexpected it's another moment of arranging that occurs where we we, we didn't see it coming. And Cannonball does that second solo first. I enjoy his idea uh, right around 326, where he, he goes down to a note and then back up and then back down over and over again. You know, very blues drenched type playing. And it's great stuff to listen for on these second solos.
0: Yeah, what do you think about everyone taking two solos? This is just another thing in this album. The arranging is so unique. This isn't something that would commonly be done. You don't really get everyone going through twice like it's like thanksgiving dinner we just had thanksgiving like everyone's going back for seconds on this one so <laughs> like sometimes you'd get like normally the normal thing to do would be to get a wraparound solo from the first soloist right that's not what they do here max what do you think about the the thanksgiving seconds on on this uh these solos here <laughs>
1: Well, I could always use more pumpkin pie. Yeah. So, uh. <laughs> so I I kind of dig it. I I was wondering why they did not trade. You know, usually you would trade fours or you could trade choruses and then eights and then fours or something. Um like we've heard a lot of a lot of cats do on albums like this, but here they don't. They just each take second solos. Um I it does seem a, a little much to me, but I I don't think it it deters from anything musically. Mm. Um, if anything, it, it adds because it was a gotcha moment where we weren't expecting it, you know, initially because it's not typically what you would do. And so it, it to me, it overall elevates the album.
0: I think and that's the main thing is like we say usually like usually this is what you do here. They take usually on this album and they kind of just throw it out the window. They're like, we're going (laughs) to do what we want to do and we're going to make this different. And so I think that that's, you know, like whether or not you like both of the solos from everybody, it's a cool moment. They're like, oh, no, we're going around again. You know, so I, I definitely agree with what Max is saying there.
1: Yeah. And there's, you know, there's little stuff to listen for in each of those second solos. But all in all, just generally speaking, it's a great aspect to the track. And also, if you listen to the beginning and the end, they definitely speed up. There's a different tempo at the top than when they're ending. And to me, it's a lesson in that it's okay to speed up a bit. Mm -hmm. It's not so great to unintentionally slow down. So, you know, there are moments to listen for for that. But if you speed up a little bit, that to me... Uh, exemplifies the energy that's going on musically
0: and especially through a blues form you definitely want to push the tempo rather than drag especially on like a blues shuffle a blues kind of feel um it's it can be easy for blues to drag um but yeah i like that they're pushing and it just shows the energy that they're playing with um especially
1: right and another cool moment about this track is the very very end (laughs) you can hear miles davis say uh, quote, is that what you wanted, Alfred? Unquote. So he's saying that to Alfred Lyon. Yep. You know, uh, he's, he's working on it with him in the studio, and that's got to be one of the coolest moments on record from the year 1958, is Miles Davis and in, in what he's saying, is that what you wanted, Alfred? Because obviously it's so killer. Yeah, <laughs> it's like ju- the way just he did.
0: says it. You gotta listen to it. Oh my god. The way he says it is like, he knows that it's what Alfred wanted. He just says it because he's like, that what you wanted, Alfred? That good? Right. (laughs) So I I had a sarcasm. Yeah. And I love that that they chose to leave it in to the the recording because, you know, they could have just taken that out, but I think it's awesome that miles, you know, they just leave it in.
1: And it's another point of character that is included in these albums. Yep. Um, that you, you were talking about earlier. So, just all in all from beginning to end with one for danny O, it's got to be one of my favorites from the record and it is probably on a list of top 20 tunes recorded maybe for me in in jazz history i don't know maybe not top 20 but it's definitely up up there there.
0: wow that's yeah that's high praise for sure
1: you know for me personally yeah
0: no it's it's definitely i mean you could put honestly, most of these tracks into a, a top, however many songs in jazz history, you know?
1: Yeah, at least in this time period. Yeah, for say. sure. Yeah, yeah. And then the the last track we get on the LP record is Dancing in the Dark. This is a pop song or a great American songbook standard written by Arthur Schwartz from a 19, excuse me, 1931 show called The Bandwagon. Arthur Schwartz, if you don't know, he taught himself piano as a kid, And he played for silent films by the time he was 14 and he wanted to pursue music, but his father made him go to, go to law school. Uh, yet he was still working on his songwriting and Arthur Schwartz published his first tune in 1923. And apparently he knew George Gershwin and Lawrence Hart, Lawrence Hart, excuse me. And they heavily encouraged him to continue his music career despite his dad's wishes. And by 1928, Arthur Schwartz had closed his law office and he was writing music full time alongside lyricist Howard Dietz. So there's a moment in history where, you know, you get you get uh, sometimes a lack of support from parents and, and those really heavily involved in your life for your pursuit of music and Arthur Schwartz, you know just continued throughout that adversity and and gave us tunes like this that that we can pull from in our music
0: and i think it's uh it's kind of just like the classic musician kind of thing it's like your parents are just like oh no like you'll never make it and you have like a good job and you're just like nope i'm doing i'm doing the musician thing so kudos to to arthur for being able to be like no i'm you know this is what i'm gonna do and standing up to to his dad in that situation yeah
1: Another too familiar example of that sort of situation. Yeah. Um, But he continued to have many musicals. He worked for Columbia Pictures, and he had a long career working with greats like Frank Lesser, Dorothy Fields, Johnny Mercer, and many more before he passed in 1984. And if you don't know, Dancing in the Dark was first recorded by Bing Crosby in 1931 and also famously covered by Artie Shaw in 1941 and others like Bird, Frank Sinatra, Mel Torme, Johnny Mathis, Diana Krall, and many more have covered this tune. So it's not overdone, but it is pretty well covered. Um, And and Cannonball, I think, in general, is great at picking standards, especially ballads, that are not too overdone and played um, like this one. And, it, you know, it's familiar, but it's not like doing a very common Duke tune or something. It's it, it's still kind of unique to pick Dancing in the Dark for an album like this. And I love how it starts with the saxophone bringing in the rhythm section. So right away you get Cannonball at the beginning and not the rhythm section bringing in Cannonball. You get Cannonball bringing in the rhythm section. And I love when that happens. You don't always have to have the rhythm section start every tune. There's also very stylistic playing by Cannonball on the melody. Great vibrato, great bending of notes, awesome melismatic additions to the melody, and there's a clear sense of dynamics that he uses too. The form is kind of a two 16 bar section form where you get an A and an A prime, so 32 bars altogether. I love listening to Sam Jones on the bass as well. He's holding down the tempo tremendously. Great to listen for Jones's bass lines. And R. Blakey is on brushes again, which is awesome to hear. Hank's copping is nice. He uses pedals on on many of his chords that he's playing that extend the sound, and it has a really nice touch to everything that's going on. And it it's cool the way, you know, we we get a lot of Cannonball, and I think a lot of rhythm section moments. But there's no Miles Davis on this track. Um, and so it's the opposite of what we were getting in the beginning of the album where you get miles doing melodies and a lot of miles features. But at the end of the album, we're getting pretty much all cannonball. So it's a cool, you know, sort of uh moment to listen for in those differences in the album.
0: Yeah. And I think it's cool. It kind of, this is a random reference, but, um, I've heard this phrase in like basketball. It's like not always about who starts the game. It's who cl- finishes the game, you know? So this tells you who's, who's the closer, whose album this is, you know, miles gives us started and miles is great throughout the album, but you know, cannonball is the one closing out the, the game here. And on the final track, it's all about cannonball here.
1: That is an awesome analogy. You're, <laughs> you know, we're both into sports, but you're more of a basketball head. So I, I like how you put that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this track, Dancing in the Dark, also has a nice ending, and I love the repeated notes from Cannonball that's played as the piano, the bass, and the drums get heavier, and it's really cool to hear the faster plucking that's going on from Sam Jones's bass that takes place. To me, this is this is a really great ending. It's well executed, and I think it's a good finisher to the album in general.
0: Yeah, I, I love this tune to... To end the album, um, I think the melody is so good from Cannonball. We haven't heard him on solo, on, you know, any, I think any melodies really. Um, his style and approach, the vibrato, the dynamics, it's all there from Cannonball. And just the rhythm section, like it's another thing where they're just developing so well. They're kind of more sparse through the head to give Cannonball the the freedom and the space to operate. And, um, but it kind of gives them somewhere to build into with the solo so i think it's just it's really nice it's doesn't you know it's not in your face but it's just it's really well done here on on this this um ballad wow i couldn't think of the word ballad on this ballad from (laughs) cannonball (laughs) i was like what are these tunes called um on this ballad from cannonball cannonball i mean it's just so great and ballad playing everything that cannonball does is great and i just love the the short cadenza at the end they could have gone longer with the cannonball cadenza but i just love to get that little cadenza and like that final statement from cannonball at the end so i love the way that they they end the album with this track they need you need a ballad i in my opinion on this album um and this it's just awesome in the way they end it
1: i think you're right that the way the album is curated they they made sure there was a ballad and i appreciate that and also, I can never get enough of saxophone cadenzas. So you gotta have that in there. So I, I really dig that too.
0: Yeah. So. And you might not always get the, the ballad last, but I think it works really well for the reasons we said with it being featuring Cannonball exclusively. So I think it really makes sense here, even though I might not always like a ballad last. Like I, I love it here.
1: Right. Now, the digital version of this record does mm. include a bonus track. Um, which is really a Nat Adderley tune. They call it something else, um, and it's been credited to multiple players. But um, that's also on the digital version. We're not going to get into that here because we wanted to stick to the to the actual LP record um, itself and and just be true to the album. Um, but you know that that's cool to check out if you want to on Spotify or
0: wherever you get your music digitally yeah it is a really cool tune and good recording but yeah i think this one some sometimes will include the bonus tracks um but other times like albums like this we want to just get it in its original like form to kind of see what's going on um what's let's see what's the name why do i forget that oh it's called bangoon is the name of that um AKA yeah but allison's I, uncle yeah yeah allison's uncle it,
1: it goes by a few different names and i, I think it's really nad adderley that composed it um but it's it's been called multiple things and it's been credited to multiple people so that's <laughs> yeah. something you know something to, to think about too with some of these songs um but yeah we're not going to go into that one here but it is a good track to listen for
0: yeah in the same cast so yeah definitely some more cool stuff going on well let's get into this is a short one there's only five tracks um let's get into our top three tracks and our not so hot tracks max i'll let you go first on on this for this week
1: my top three is number one. We got love for sale mm-hmm. the way they do it. Miles's approach to the melody, the extended cannonball solo. Um, it, it, it's just a great version of that tune. And it's one of those that is a go-to, um, recording of love for sale that most players would tell you, you really need to check out. Number two is one for daddy. O," which was, uh, the blues drenched, um, I think Nat Adderley composition, and it's just so killer. Um, you get those extended solos, uh, and, and the 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 melody to me really is is un- not only unique, but it's really, I don't know, so swinging. It feels so good on that 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 mm-hmm. track. Number three, we get Autumn Leaves, the great intro, the great melody playing, the great solos. Yada, yada, yada. My not so hot is dancing in the dark. And I cannot believe I'm putting a ballad for my not so hot. It really pains me. I I couldn't even physically type out dancing in the dark for my not so hot on our show notes that, that you and I keep track of because my fingers were shaking and i was (laughs) i was distraught how are you really putting a ballad for not so hot
0: max is praying to cannonball adderly's ghost apologizing to his spirit
1: yes please don't take it personally i love it but there just had to be one so that's the one i had to pick
0: yeah i have a, a pretty similar top three uh but a little different order i've got autumn leaves number one i just think that this this track it's just iconic it's the the recording of this is a very famous standard but this recording of it is the recording in my opinion and i just love it the style from miles the solos everything about autumn leaves is great the the intros the hank jones solo it just to me it's the the one the song but it's it's kind of 1a and 1b with love for sale in my opinion which i have love for sale second i think the way that they do it it's just i mean it's it's awesome to get love for sale and kind of take the risk and do it differently but that's what this album isn't about what you'd expect it's not just all of your straight ahead standards played in a straight ahead way they take it and they do it in their way. And Love for Sale is a great example of them taking a song and making it their own. So I'm, Love for Sale, is a, it's a great recording of that tune. Um, the cannonball solo on that is incredible. And then third, I have one for Daddy-O. Just a great blues tune the Thanksgiving seconds on the solos. It's just, it's a great recording. Everything on this album's great. Anything could be in the top three in any order, and I wouldn't be mad at it. Um, but that's, in my personal opinion, that's my top three. That's the tracks that speak to me in that order. Autumn Leaves, Love for Sale then One for Daddy-O. And then, like Max said, like how can you even pick a not-so-hot? Um, I, I put Dancing in the Dark as well, and I think just because... I don't it's hard to even say why but I think the other tracks just have so much that's interesting that it would be so it I would I would Cannonball will be rolling over his grave if I picked any of the other tracks as a not so hot. Like I'm just trying to not upset him the least amount possible. (laughs) So we love you, Cannonball, and don't hurt us. Um so yeah, that's why I picked Dancing in the Dark is I think you you can't do that to any of the other tracks. You can't really do it to Dancing in the Dark, but we gotta we gotta do something. So that's that's my quote unquote not so hot for the album.
1: And overall, I would say Dancing in the dark is just not as iconic of a track as those top three that you and i both had and um, even
0: something else too
1: yeah and something else is is really cool because of the back and forth melody and you know hint of modalism and yeah. just the the playing that goes on you know that one is is and it's the title track yeah and you know it's we well done steal
0: the title track from the album that would be <laughs> <laughs> right
1: so Because of, you know, process of elimination, it has to be dancing in the dark, but that does not take away from the expression and the style that is evidence on that track.
0: Yep, we got to stick true to our format. We got to pick something. So we, you know, sometimes it's going to be begrudgingly and it definitely is here. Cool. Let's get into our overall album thoughts and our ratings for this album. Um, I'll go ahead and go first. Something else is Cannonball Adderley's signature work and is a masterpiece from start to finish. It's one of the few albums ever to feature Miles Davis as a sideman, and it shows how much respect he had for Cannonball and his playing. The album contains renditions of Autumn Leaves and Love for Sale that have become the go-to recordings of these tunes in the jazz culture. It feels as though there's a certain magic in the air in the studio with this recording and this feeling grips you from that Hank Jones intro on Autumn Leaves until that cannonball cadenza on Dancing in the Dark. I have goosebumps right now just talking about this. That's crazy. That's the first time this has happened. But this just the feeling that this album gives you. Um, everything on this album is so well crafted and curated. And one has to imagine that Miles Davis had a hand in this creative process. Miles does an incredible job as a sideman here. And one could really call him a co-leader in the session, honestly. Miles's playing is so stylistic and cool and complements Cannonball so well without ever really feeling like Miles is taking over the show, which would be easy for someone like Miles to do. The rhythm section is so dialed in and, and in the pocket throughout. Art Blakey does a great job of letting the music come to him and kind of tapping into this magical vibe in the studio and taking us along for this ride. Hank Jones playing is one of the driving forces on this album as well. And um, oh, sorry, I meant to say Sam Jones does everything perfectly and kind of right where it needs to be. And Sam Jones feels so great on the album. And then last but not least, Hank Jones is is one of the driving forces in this album. Kind of underrated, in my opinion. His intros are iconic absolutely iconic his comping is perfect and his solos they're just ever changing and evolving with the landscape of the music on the album and it's 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 musicality at its finest from Hank Jones so definitely something to appreciate there this album will live on as one of the greatest jazz albums of all time and this is very much de- deservedly so um it's five tracks of absolute brilliance and jazz euphoria it simply does not get much better than this album in my opinion and so, for that reason, it gets a nine point seven out of ten.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're you're onto something. I would also, um, you know, make some similar points. I would say Cannonball Adderley's Blue Note album is a masterpiece. Everything from Miles' treatment of melodies to Cannonball's superb improvisations is absolutely dynamite. This album's "In the Pocket Swing" is captivating. Everybody's musicality is well displayed. While such tunes as Autumn Leaves and Love for Sale are arguably overdone and well covered in the world of of jazz, these versions of those two standards are highly regarded as essential go-to recordings. The swing of One for Daddy-O feels so good as Hank Jones and the rhythm section exemplify flawless groove while working together in a way that only complements everything Miles and Cannonball have to offer. Sam Jones's bass fits Blakey's drive and playing to a T, Cannonball's ballad playing is a nice touch to the album with his version of Dancing in the Dark. The intros are a knockout equipped with feel-good playing by pianist Hank Jones. This is an all-star cast that effectively delivers everything you'd expect from this group of players. I do think it would have been cool if On one of the standards where only Miles plays the head, that he and Cannonball would have split it or harmonized some melodic moments. Also, a true lengthy bass or drum feature would be a nice addition, too. Even though both Sam Jones and R. Blakey add so much in terms of groove, feel, comping, and superb rhythm section playing. And the bonus track on the digital version does include a drum solo. One other possible critique could be that one could argue this version of Autumn Leaves is a little too slow. However, I think that's what makes this recording so distinct and powerful. Also, fade-out endings are used just a bit too frequently here. Maybe do something different on one of those endings. This is ultimately a great album with legendary musicians and a classic track listing that includes essential standards, a Miles tune, and a Nat Adderley composition. I appreciate the emphasis on the blues moments, while Cannonball's bop-heavy improv lines and hard bop tendencies are also a key part to this record. Miles's tone, use of space, and treatment of melodies is another important component to the album, as well as it being one of the few instances where Miles Davis, after his Bob era playing with Bird, is a sideman. The combo of Cannonball and Miles is spot on alongside a timelessly swing and rhythm section. Any jazz collection of note should include this record, no doubt about it. Overall score, 9.7 out of 10.
0: Yeah, I love the point you make there. If we went a whole overall thoughts with Max not saying something about fade outs, I think uh that podcast <laughs> would probably just explode at that point. <laughs> so, <laughs> Max and these fade outs. So, yeah, I but I'm I'm right on on board with you. 9.7 out of 10 from both of us, which gives it the Jazz Jam score of 9.7 out of 10. A really high mark and deservedly so on this album. Max, why don't you tell us um a little bit about what we've got coming up next week. Before you do that, though, I want to just kind of direct everyone's attention to our website we've got. Um, it's just a great resource if you're just looking to see like kind of the work we've done. All of our album reviews are on there. We've got artist pages with biographies. Every album has its own page with our thoughts, our overall thoughts written out, and our our rating. So if you're looking for new episodes that you want to check out or new albums you want to check out, go to our website, check it out. Um if you don't want to listen to a whole episode but want to get an idea for what an album's about, that's totally fine. Go to our website and you can kind of just read what we have to say in our rating about it. Um if you don't have time to listen to the whole episode. So lots of cool things going on there. It has links to our Instagram. Follow us there at the Jazz Jam Podcast links we have a youtube channel where we post if you like video versions we don't have like actual videos of us talking maybe at some point we'll have that included um but yeah so everything's there it's awesome we have a power rankings list if you want to see like kind of our our power rankings of all the episodes or all the albums that we've done um, hint, this is number one as of this episode, uh, now, um, something else is the top of the rankings. So yeah, all that's a cool stuff there. I just want to direct your attention there. Talk about that a little bit as it's a great resource and it's something we've put a lot of work into. So, um, definitely go check out our website, but Max, why don't you, uh, tell us about what we've got coming up next week.
1: Yeah. Next I was, uh, obliged to pick the next new, newer modern album that we're going to do and we're going to cover the album five piece band live. It's a live recording from Chick Corea, John McLaughlin. There's also players like Kenny Garrett and Christian, uh, Christian McBride. And it's, it's an awesome sort of live recording that incorporates a lot of great playing in in different spots and each one is is featured well it's it's a an eclectic mix of tunes there's some miles davis influence as well on that album so that that's what sparked you know that album that came into my mind and also this was uh one record that was more or less uh, suggested to me for you and i to cover from a bass player friend of mine so this is a a, a sort of a listener Recommendation. So those cool. out there listening, yeah, if you, if you have some albums that you think you'd want us to cover or that we should, please let us know. And and so this is one of those. It also won the 2010 Grammy Award for the best jazz instrumental album. So it, it is overall a great record, and and we're going to get into some more modern playing, but it it still got a lot of the history in it and it's just it's got some really wow moments on it so Hmm. a lot to talk about
0: yeah i'm gonna be honest i've never listened to anything i haven't listened to this recording at all um so i'm super excited we got some really cool players and some different players that we haven't covered yet um which is cool kind of like a a, some of the gap players you know with chick korea being really heavy heavy in the fusion era um and yeah, like a newer player like Christian McBride, who's been a while around for a while, but is still heavy in the scene. So this is going to be a cool one to check out. I've never listened to anything from it. So it's a, a full first time listen for me. So I'm super excited to, to get into that one next week.
1: Yeah, I've only actually listened to a few tracks. I haven't listened to the whole record myself. So it'll be it'll be good for both you and I to, to really dig in and, and see what we come up
0: with. Cool. Yeah, I'm super excited. But yeah, this has been our review of something else, the prolific album by Cannonball Adderley and Miles Davis. Um, It's been really cool getting to listen to this one um, and kind of doing some live listens and listen-ins of different parts of the tracks. I think we're going to include that more. I really like doing that. So definitely thanks for joining us this week. Um, If you have any questions or anything, reach out to us, let us know what you're thinking and. Just want to thank you for listening and uh, we're going to keep on doing this thing and we're excited to keep bringing you new episodes. But for Max Levy, I have been Dwayne Gunnels and this has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast.